Basically, I like to think of SPF as a list of approved senders. Of course, the mom and me. If you have a kid that goes to daycare or school, sometimes you can have a list of approved people who can pick them up. So maybe your aunt, grandma, whatever, these people can pick up my child. How SPF is, it's like, these are the IPs that are allowed to send from my domain. This week on Inboxing, Alyssa Doolin. Deliverability and Compliance Manager at ConvertKit. Welcome back to another episode of Inboxing. I'm your host as always, Hillel Berg. And today we're talking about deliverability with Alyssa Doolin. Alyssa has been working in email for I think about five years and she fell into deliver ah deliver deliverability the art of getting into the inbox or inboxing which is I didn't actually know when I started this podcast but that's what they call it when you actually nail nail it and get into the inbox but yeah a lot of people a lot of companies struggle with spam it's always shocking to me whenever I see look at my spam folder and see who's in there and and that's why there are jobs like this especially for the ESPs who try to make sure that their emails don't land in spam. So we'll talk all about that and try to make sense of it all. So without any further ado, please welcome Alyssa Doolin. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Congratulations also. You're a new mom. Thank right? you. Yes. Yeah, he's 10 <laughs> months old, but it feels very new still. But yeah, no, I'm the first year at motherhood. That's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot. Congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. For sure. But hopefully we'll get through this. Without any interruption. We'll see. Yeah, uh, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's just jump right in. So yeah, let's hear a little bit about you and how did you get fall down the email hole? Yeah, I love that with email. No one just went to school to do this or went on a straight path. It's always weird. So my weird path is that I basically started out as a high school math teacher and I just always have loved math and I knew I wanted to help people and I like kids in general. So I was like, okay, this makes sense. And then when I was going to school to get my master's to be a teacher, it was like part-time. I was like, oh, I'll get a part-time job. And I started working for a company called Eventbrite, which is like a SaaS company. You can buy tickets to events, host your own event. And it was my first time working at a tech company. I was just doing customer support, emails, phone calls, chat, all the fun stuff. But it was super challenging, but I loved it. And I especially just loved working at a tech company and kept wanting to dive in. I did a little work with the trust and safety team there, which I really enjoyed. And then it was back. I got my degree. It was back into the classroom. And I just found when I was in the classroom that it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't what I was looking for. And... So I made a pretty big switch after about only really like a year of teaching. I just knew it wasn't the right path and I wanted to get off it as soon as I could if I knew that. So I knew I wanted to work at a tech company again. I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had heard of a tech company in Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm from and called Emma, which stands for email marketing. And I was just looking at their job board. What on here could I do? And I saw a deliverability specialist role, and I had never heard of that before. The requirements were like customer service and technical skills and kind of, yeah, being a problem solver, which I I like math. I like solving problems. And I had done a lot of customer service. So 
I applied and luckily got the job, which is how it all started and how I'm here now. I always have to give a shout out to my boss at Emma Art Quanstrom. I think the people who go to have been going to MOG for a long time probably know Art. And he had, I think, 10 years of experience when I got the job. So he just taught me everything on the job. And there's no way I could be still doing deliverability without him. Yeah. All right. So way to go, Emma. Shout out to Emma. Yeah. Cool. All right. So what kind of things do you find upsetting in your inbox? Oh, there's so many. I initially thought of spam and unsolicited mail, but I thought that was too easy. I would say anything that's intentionally misleading is upsetting to me. I get the intention behind it to get the highest open rates possible or whatever, but I hate when you get the emails with the subject line, read your order or something like that, or here's your receipt or something. You're like, I never paid for anything. What is this about? And you open it and it's, you should buy this product, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that comes from brands that like I did subscribe to. They're just trying to get me to open the messages and I don't like that. So I would say that upsets me the most. All right. Awesome. All right, so what we're talking about deliverability. So what are the biggest mistakes that people make about deliverability? Yeah, uh, there are so many I can think of. And again, I think the obvious ones are like sending cold emails and things like that. But I tried to reframe this and think about the ConvertKit customers I help. What are the things I see happen most often where someone runs into an issue? And for me, it comes down to a lack of consistency. I think a lot of people don't understand that if your emails are going to make it into the inbox, there are filters that are looking at history to make decisions on things. They're looking at a lot of things, but history is one of them. And if something changes all of a sudden, that can throw up a red flag for those mailbox providers. So it's really important to have as much consistency as you can when it comes to the volume, the IPs you're sending from, the sending domain you're using the like list size you're sending to. So what I see is a lot of people will make some sort of huge change and they don't plan. They just think, oh, it's email. It'll land in the inbox. And then they run into a huge issue and I'm like, what happened? And they say something like, we started sending with a new sending domain that we've never used before. Or we switched ESPs and we sent from the new one day one to our full list. And it's a huge list. Things like that I see. That's the thing I see people run into most, at least in my job. For sure. I wonder if you'd expand, like, how many things are ESPs or ESPs? The other side of it is, I guess, email clients, like Yahoo's and Gmail, Hotmail. <laughs> how, like, who's keeping track of all that? <laughs> is there, like, an organization in between when you send an email? Can you explain more? What do you mean by <laughs> keeping track what of that? What do I mean? <laughs> is, is each, I guess, is each... Each inbox basically on its own, meaning each provider and mm, making a, a decision if you're going to the inbox or they like consulting mm -hmm. like a third party organization. Mm -hmm. Hey, what do you think about these people? Should we yeah. let them in or not? That's a really good question. The way I understand it, obviously, a lot of this stuff is behind closed doors. So those mailbox writers aren't going to tell us usually how they're uh, making those decisions. But from you know what I've heard, what I've seen sending we send about two billion messages a month so that helps us have some data it seems like each mailbox provider has their own formula and some of the inputs they use to determine where a message should land are their internal systems and what they've seen internally and then some are external inputs like block lists 
or lists of spam traps or things like that. So one mailbox provider might use Spam House, one might use Cloudmark, and then one might use very minimal like external sources and just have all their internal data and machine learning working to determine where messages should go. So I would say it varies a lot. It seems, again, don't quote me on this <laughs> because I'm not in their internal teams. But from what I've seen, it seems like Gmail uses a lot of like in-house machine learning based on domain reputation and the DKIM signing domain reputation and things like that. While large B2B providers like a Microsoft Office might use different sorts of data sets, like more external sources. They're looking at IP reputation more and things like that. So each mailbox provider is pretty different. So it's important that you look at deliverability at each one kind of uniquely. Okay. I, do you recommend any tools? I know there are like seed lists kind of things and companies that provide that kind of service where you can actually have eyeballs and know where your emails are landing. Do you, do you talk to that at all? Yeah. I think the recommendation is so different based on who you are and what you're doing. The people I work with most are creators and they are like authors and Arnold Schwarzenegger and yeah, we just like musician Tim McGraw uses ConvertKit. Those sorts, the people I'm working with, it's usually like a team of one, maybe it's even the creator themselves and they aren't going to have a ton of tools set up. So you're usually we're telling them to look at their own data and their own trends, especially over time, obviously. The metrics themselves just at face value are going to be skewed because of all the things and open rate not being accurate. But looking at trends over time, listening to what your subscribers are telling you, I work with a kind of customer base where if someone's message goes to the spam folder, they reach out to the creator and they're like, I love your work. Your message is going to my spam folder. So we have a really tight feedback loop with just subscribers in general. So I think it depends. But I've also worked like with Emma when I worked at Emma with much larger organizations like universities and large companies where they don't have that sort of like tight feedback loop with subscribers and they do need more of a glimpse of what's happening. So I think seedless tests can be insightful if you're using them correctly and what they can and can't do. They're definitely not like a 100% accurate picture of what's happening because they're not your subscribers and they're not necessarily real email addresses but I think it can help to get a pulse on things if you run seedless tests all the time and you normally see pretty good inbox placement at Outlook for example and then all of a sudden you notice your open rates drop in real life and then you do a seedless test and it says Outlook is all going to spam and then maybe you run a test with your own Outlook address and it goes to spam it's like a piece of the puzzle and you can be like okay that's helpful it helps you narrow down but I think you can't look at seedless testing outside of your normal actual data and then maybe some testing on your own too. What was your personal biggest win? Yeah, this is a good question. I had to think about it. I feel like if I think about my like professional career, one thing I feel proud of that was really hard and I was able to figure it out is basically I went from Emma where it was my first job in deliverability to ConvertKit, where they hadn't had a deliverability person yet. They had used some contractors, but there was no deliverability team. So I had to just join and build up the team. And when I joined, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're in the middle of transitioning to completely new to us IPs and like an entirely new sending infrastructure. 
I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, yeah, and it's not, it wasn't going super well at the time. And so I needed to get in there and figure out, okay, how can we make this transition really smooth for customers? What needs to happen? That was completely new. Like I had never really done that before. And so I think that was a big win was getting that initiative over the line, getting us onto our new sending infrastructure with the new to us IPs and getting them in a good place and warmed up and customers were seeing good deliverability. But that was a crazy challenge to jump into and one that I'm looking back very proud that I was able to hop in there and get it taken care of. Yeah, and I was like, you left the academy and then you were like in charge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little scary. Attention, e-commerce business owners. Hi, I'm Hillel. And thank you for listening to Inboxing. Hillel Bergula Marketing is here to skyrocket your e-commerce sales. With personalized campaigns and conversion optimization, will help you maximize profits. Hillel Berg Email Marketing, your partner for success. All right, well, great job, and yeah, thank God for ConvertKit. They let you soar. All right, so what are your top tips for ensuring great deliverability? Yeah, this is a really good question, and. I, again, just always like to preface that I think this is like one of those it depends questions. I would give different advice based on who you are, what's going on. I know I have friends that work at huge ESPs that work with senders that have millions and millions of subscribers. And then I work with some senders that have 300 subscribers and then some that have a million subscribers. So I think if just in general talking to someone with less than a million subscribers, I would say my first tip is to always get permission to send your emails. I know not everyone loves to hear that advice, but that's just the way things are. That's my advice. I think that you should get permission to send emails, especially like your marketing emails. And it's going to be very hard to have good deliverability with unsolicited emails. So first, make sure you're always getting really clear permission. And that doesn't mean like sneaky permission, enter a giveaway for a beach vacation. And then once you do, they start receiving all your marketing emails. Like, People should sign up to actually receive what you're going to send them and be excited about it. So once someone has signed up to your list, my next tip is to set expectations and then live up to those expectations that you set with consistently high quality content. That might sound obvious, but I think a lot of people will say, here's what to expect. You're on my list. You're going to get a weekly newsletter about all of these great things. And then when life gets busy or something happens, they don't really follow through on that promise. And so for that reason, I think it's really important to let your subscribers know what they're going to hear from you and then make sure to live up to that. And then next is to test. You do a lot of testing. This is going to help you make sure your authentication is working properly, that your message looks good in the inbox, that there's nothing glaringly wrong happening. And you can see on your own, does your message go to your own inbox or the spam folder? But I see a lot of times people just send out their emails and they all bounce or they all go to spam. And they had a DMARC issue that they weren't set up to handle. And if they had just tested with their own message, they would have spotted that before they sent it out to their full list. Fourth, protect your forms from list bombing if you haven't already. That is a huge issue I still see so many senders run into and they're doing everything right. They're a great sender. They've got permission their emails are awesome. And then their form gets hit by list bombing. And then they start to see huge complaint rates. 
And then the really good emails start going to the spam folder. And that's really sad when that happens. I recommend making sure you have reCAPTCHA or some other type of security setting on all of your forms that exist on the internet. And confirmed opt-in is great as well. I have seen bot added addresses click those confirmation emails if they have an automatic clicking spam filtering system set up. Double opt-in or confirmed opt-in isn't a perfect method all the time. So I would make sure you have both of those things. Wow. Wow. I, <laughs> I can dive into that more if you need me to. But the fifth thing is to keep an engaged list. I also think that looks different for every person. Some people need to clean their list really often. They have huge lists and it's just helpful that they're removing people pretty often. Some people have smaller lists that are really engaged and they don't have to have such a strict like timeline on when they remove people. But in general, just make sure you're keeping your list engagement like at the front of your mind. Don't let that be something that you forget about. And then a year or two later, you're like, oh, half of my list hasn't opened in a year and I'm having deliverability problems. So my recommendation is that you have a re-engagement sequence set up so that when people start to become cold, you're able to make them engaged again. And then for the people that ultimately don't become engaged again, decide when it's time to let those people right. go. That's awesome. It was shocking to me. Yeah, like that. I always thought like double opt-in was like the cure for all bot signups. But it, can I ask just in general, like I imagine a lot of people try to avoid double opt-in. I know brands I've worked with are like, no. Is there like a metric? It really depends on the email addresses that are getting added. I think a lot of people might not realize that the email addresses that the bots are adding normally belong to real people. So if they're adding a bunch of email addresses that are those B2B addresses that have like automatic clicking. A lot of like big companies will have where their spam filters click almost every link in a message. So I've seen an instance where people will have list bombing and the bots add a bunch of B2C addresses and then those B2C addresses get confirmed because they clicked the opt-in link, but the human didn't actually do that. Uh-huh, that's wild. All right, the flip side of that would be deliverability pitfalls. So where, <laughs> yeah, so where people just, yeah, you know, oops. Oh man, we're going to spam. <laughs> yeah, there are so many. To tie back to my my last point, I think sending to a list of subscribers who didn't opt in, but sometimes people don't realize, like they're not really doing it maliciously, but maybe they send to all of their LinkedIn connections or things like that, and they don't realize that's a big deal. But that's a big pitfall where if someone didn't directly opt into your message, there's a good chance they're not going to engage with it very well, and that impacts your deliverability. So make sure, again, that everyone has opted in. But another one I see people have a pitfall they really don't know about is including links in your email that don't have a very good reputation. So an example of this is like a link shortener, not to pick on Bitly, but I've seen that one cause the most problems in the past. Sometimes the bit.ly, that domain reputation will be so bad that Gmail will just bounce any message that has a Bitly link in it. They don't do it all the time. It seems like it depends on the reputation of Bitly, but that URL is shared by who knows who, probably lots of spammers are using it to shorten their spammy links. So I would just keep in mind that any link that you include in your message also carries a reputation that's going to impact your deliverability. So make sure that the links you include are healthy links that you feel good about, links to your own website, or links to websites where 
basically spammers can't be using <laughs> that website to do other things. And then third thing I see people run into a lot and they don't realize it's an issue is when they have DMARC set up on their domain, which is wonderful, but they don't take the extra steps needed in their ESP to make their emails work with DMARC and pass DMARC. I see that fairly often where someone was like, oh, I heard about DMARC. I'm going to go set that up. And then they don't do anything else. And <laughs> then they go to send their newsletter and all their messages bounce or they all go to the spam folder. And it's because they didn't verify their domain and their ESP and fix their authentication issues. What do you think are the biggest myths in terms of deliverability? Yeah, the most famous one that I think deliverability specialists love to talk about is the list of spam words to avoid, which is fun because there's like a little debate to it. I would think in general, like the whole don't use these words in your email or it's going to go to spam is mostly not helpful and that's no longer a thing. However, everything in deliverability is it depends. I'm sure there are still some mailboxes out there somewhere who are flagging based on certain keywords, maybe really strict mailboxes that have set up their own configurations. But for the most part, the spam word thing, the trigger words, is no longer something that senders should be worried about as long as they are following all the best practices and sending to a healthy list using like a certain word usually is not going to send you to the spam folder. Next is the promotions tab. The myth is that the promotions tab is the spam folder. I think a lot of senders think that's true. But really, the promotions tab is still the inbox. I know a lot of people don't like being there, but it isn't a bad thing. It's Gmail's algorithms working the way that they were intended to work. Really, the primary tab is meant for transactional messages, more one-to-one -one messages, things like emails from your doctor or your boss or your grandma or things like that. And the promotions tab is meant for more promotional emails. Since I do work with a lot of creators who are writing newsletters, even if they're not selling anything, I have to sometimes explain that it is still promotional. You're promoting your own writing. It's a one-to-many message, even if it's not necessarily selling anything. I have to explain pretty often that the promotions tab is the inbox and it's not a punishment. And I try to help people embrace it a little bit. And then the other myth I've heard mostly from like other deliverability people is like that every sender should be on a dedicated IP. Again, I think that comes from each deliverability person like works with their own niche of email senders and deliverability looks so different depending on the type of customer you're working with. So like I said, I work with some people who have a list of 300 subscribers. They should not be on a dedicated IP. I work with a lot of people that should not be on a dedicated IP and they do really well on our shared IPs that we are very strict about and make sure that absolutely no spammers are on and you have to have really great engagement to use ConvertKit and things like that. I think that's the myth I see is basically that shared IPs are terrible and everyone should be on a dedicated IP. But I, it, from the senders I see, that is not the case and they would actually have a much worse time on a dedicated IP. Alyssa, what are your favorite brands to uh, read in your own inbox. Yeah, I hate to be really boring. I honestly have just not been like a consumer of email very much lately other than work email, which I feel like is hard enough to get through those emails. I used to be like nerd out about emails that I loved, but yeah, being a new mom, there's not a lot of that happening. 
Uh, I will say the emails I usually always open that I'm loving right now are from a company called Love Every, and they are like a Montessori toy company. They send us like new toys every three months based on my baby's like development and things. So they'll send an email before I get the new box and it's like, here's what the box does. And they also send like just helpful blog posts, emails about developmental stages so those are emails I will open. And I think that brand does a great job of sending really helpful emails that obviously they're selling you something, but they don't, none of their emails ever feel really salesy at all. They feel just so helpful and educational. So I think that's a brand anyone can learn from about like how to serve your subscribers, even though obviously you want them to buy stuff from you. You don't have to sell to them all the time. You can just be really helpful to them. And then when it's time for them to buy something, they're probably going to choose you. Right. Now, that's a great example. Yeah. That like they serve new moms and their children and yeah, they know where the kid's born <laughs> and then you have your series the timed out and the products. It's a great model. Okay. What do you find is the biggest challenge in your role in your everyday as a deliverability and compliance manager at Convert? Yeah. This has changed a lot as my role has changed a lot in the last, I've been at ConvertKit almost four years now. So in the beginning, the challenge was I was a team of one and we are a self-service ESP. Spammers and fishers loved to try and use us to send out their messages. So back then I would say my biggest challenge was how do we stop spammers and fishers and do it in a scalable way? We can't have human eyeballs on everything. Luckily, that problem has been solved long ago. So I don't really have to think about that as much anymore, knock on wood. I think I'm at a phase right now where my biggest, this might not be helpful to listeners, but just to be honest, my biggest challenge is wanting to maintain extremely high quality support, but no longer being able to be the person who handles every single deliverability ticket because that's how it used to be. I used to handle every single deliverability question that came in through our ticketing system, it came to me, which is fun because I could help anyone from a little, a small-ish question of why am I not going to promotions or bigger questions and that needed a lot of diving in. And I felt really good about that level of quality. And then my teammate, I brought on Melissa, which is a little confusing. She's amazing. And she started handling every deliverability ticket. And now we're growing so much where like, she can't do that anymore. We need more people to handle them. Yeah, I think that's like the phase I'm at right now is it's hard to let go of that one-to-one -one connection feeling I loved in the queue, but I need to get to a point where other people are handling deliverability tickets and training someone up on how to handle those is really challenging. So that's where I'm at right now, just figuring out that balance. All right, can you explain email authentication, SPF, DKIM and DMARC to me as if I'm in the third grade. I sure will try. It's been a while since I've done this. Hopefully I'm not too rusty. <laughs> I'll give you my best shot. So first I'll start with SPF. It stands for Sender Policy Framework. But basically I like to think of SPF as a list of approved senders. Of course the mom and me. It's, if you have a kid that ha goes to daycare, or school, sometimes you can have a list of approved people who can pick them up. So maybe your aunt, grandma, whatever, these people can pick up my child. How SPF is, it's like, these are the IPs that are allowed to send from my domain. But the tricky thing about SPF is that SPF is checked on the return path domain that is like within the headers of the email message. 
it's not checked on the friendly from domain, which is what your subscribers see in their inbox. It's in the background. So for most people who use an ESP and they haven't set up like a custom configuration, SPF is actually being checked on your ESP's domain. That's how it normally works. So for most just like smaller senders who don't have a lot of tech savvy skills and they just want to get started, they probably don't even need to set up SPF because ESP is covering that for them. Obviously, they should check into that, but that's SPF. So it's connected to that return path domain. Then DKIM came in because it's really easy to still spoof a domain. A spammer could put their own domain in the return path and have it pass SPF beautifully and then spoof the friendly from address. It doesn't really <laughs> help that much for subscribers. So DKIM is a similar method using encryption. And basically it's a way for when you send the message, you lock it up with a key. And then there's another little hole that the sender is able to unlock the message with and this public key that they have access to. But that'll only work if you locked up the message with your private key that only you have access to. And if the message got tampered with at any point, it messes with that lock. This isn't very scientific. It messes with that lock and that public key, when they go to open it, they're going to be like, oh, this message has been tampered with. It's not sealed up the way it was supposed to be. So that's my third grade way of explaining it. But again, <laughs> this is not tied to the friendly from domain that subscribers see in their mailbox. This is tied to the DKIM signing domain that is set in the message headers in the background. So there's still that problem there of spammers can authenticate messages in the background, but spoof a friendly from domain and it's still getting through and not throwing a red flag. So DMARC came in to tie all that together. So in order to pass DMARC, you have to either pass SPF or pass DKIM and that domain that's passing SPF or DKIM has to also match the friendly from domain. So DKIM is just DMARC. It's a way to just say, okay, there's authentication happening in the background of the message and at least one of those authentication methods matches the public facing domain that subscribers actually see. So we know that there's some legitimacy happening here. Okay. <laughs> that, that did help? help a little bit. I, I'm working on email for 10 years and it's still like a little bit. Every time I'm playing with MX records, it's again. But, uh, I'm glad oh, I'll wrap my head around it eventually. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, SPF I got. That one, that one, that was really clear. I love that. Yeah, the pick up the babysitter analogy. That was perfect. Alyssa, we made it to the end. And I'd love to know if you have any final thoughts you'd love to share with us. Don't have any final thoughts, I don't think. If you if this was helpful. I have a podcast too called Deliverability Defined. And it's definitely, yeah, more deliverability focused and specifically meant for like people who are doing this on their own, like creators or small business owners or entrepreneurs, maybe not super helpful for people who Walmart or something. But yeah, if that was helpful, feel free to listen to that. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and I would love to hear from you. But this was really great. And I hope you learned something from it. <laughs> That's all for today's episode of Inboxing. Um, big thank you to our guest. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you've got suggestions, please just reach out to me at hello at hellobird.com. 
Um, before we go, I want to remind you there's still sponsorship opportunities available for unboxing. Uh, so if you're interested, you can just reach out to me again. Thank you for listening and tune in next week, every Monday, for the next episode of Unboxing.